Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and of course this is, I believe the writer is Paul here, but I know some don't agree with that. They think it's one of possibly many, and the author doesn't tell us who, who he is. It just seems as though a lot of how he writes reminds me a lot of Paul, and I suppose that's why I've thought that. But he begins to go through this, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, uh, and talk about all the feats of faith that different men and women of God have had over the centuries preceding this. But he kind of at the beginning, in verse 6, he sets, his, sets the table for us. And he makes a, a statement upon which the rest of the chapter and into the next chapter are largely built. And the scripture is so important, and I pray the Lord would help us to bring out some of its meaning this evening, if he would help us to do so. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That'll be the only verse we read tonight. It's Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. The title of our message this evening from this scripture text is The Object of Our Faith. The Object of Our Faith. Among our churches, and I suppose there's a good reason for this being the case, uh, and I think it large part has to do with American history that we were founded upon very godly principles and even if people did not believe like you did, you did, they were 99.9% chance throughout American history that they were going to be some denomination of Christianity. And they would acknowledge the deity of Christ and many of the fundamentals that we all agree with. But one of the major differences that we would have and, and no doubt still do with many denominations is how are we getting to heaven? And so some would insert baptism in there, and perhaps some would put some things called sacraments in there, and any number of things that people would add to their religion, whether it was based upon works or various beliefs or whatever it might be. But for most of American history, we've kind of all started from a very similar belief and fundamentals, and as we progressed, well, we differed on some of the other fundamentals like primarily salvation. And so over the years we have found, and it's been very effective for God's people to focus largely on, we already believe in Christ, that he was a sacrifice for our sins and the necessity of his sacrifice, of his birth being of a virgin, of his death, and then of his resurrection on the third day. We all agreed on that. But when it came down to how to receive what Christ did for us, there was differences. And there remains differences today. And it is a necessary thing for God's people, especially in our day, to emphasize, I would say that one of the most, that there is a means by which the Bible teaches that we find salvation. And so we hear these words like repentance and faith or belief. But I want to take a step back before we get to repentance and faith tonight. 
Because repentance and faith must have an object. Or in other words, the word faith, and I'm hesitant to even say this because it could be misconstrued, but I'm always hesitant to use the word faith or belief. For two reasons, really. One, for people that are not religious, it sounds like Bible lingo. And so they hear the word faith and they have this abstract meaning that they don't fully understand. That's one reason. But a second reason is because I believe that the religious world today may use the same language that we use, but what we mean by the vocabulary is very different. When I say the word believe, I don't mean what many Baptist churches in Warren County mean. And so I like to use the word trust. Simple analogy. Do you trust me? People say yes. How much do you trust me? Well, many of you say, well, I'd give you $100 and say, then maybe in a year from now, will you give me that $100 back? And I'd give you my word tonight, I would. And you say, okay, I'll trust you with $100. But what if I said, give me every dime in your bank account? See, there's, there's degrees of faith. There's degrees of trust, right? Whenever I was uh, teaching these, these young people one time, I was trying to illustrate this. And so I asked a kid, I said, do you trust me? And they said, yeah. And so I had them do the, the fall where they fall backwards. And they trusted me for that because in the end, if I let them down, they're just going to have a, a, a sore rear end. But then I had them get up on a chair. I said, do you trust me? And they kind of giggled a little bit and they said, well, yeah. But the stakes were a little bit higher. Now they'd have a, a really hurt hind end. right? And then I got a ladder out. And I had to climb to the top of the ladder. And I gave him my word. I said, I'll catch you. Guess what? He wouldn't fall backwards. Because what it illustrates is that we are required by the word of God in order to inherit eternal salvation, not just to believe in God, not just to put faith in God, but to trust him entirely. The degree to which we are required to trust him is not only with things in this life, but also with things in the life to come. And so when we talk about having faith or repenting of our sins, there is an object to whom we are repenting and putting faith in. You see, the Bible teaches us over and over throughout all the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 3, we find that John the Baptist came and the brother referred to him the other night and how different of a man and how different of a preacher that he was. But the one little blurb that we have of his message is what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we turn to the next chapter in Matthew chapter 4 and we find Jesus repeating the exact same message. You must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we could turn to John chapter three and we could read about a Jesus wonderful account there with Nicodemus and his teaching that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we could go into the book of Acts into Acts chapter two and what was Peter's message on the day of Pentecost? You've, they asked, they cried out after his message and they said, what must we do? 
Now notice they didn't say, what, we must, what must we do to be saved? Big difference. That's Acts chapter 16. See, Acts chapter 16, there Paul and Silas were preaching and they said, what must we do? That, that Philippian jailer came in there and he said, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul told him he had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These men, these Jewish men who had been guilty of crucifying the Messiah, they merely said this, what do we do? It's a little broader of a question, right? So let me tell you the answer that I would give somebody who was seeking after God. It's the very one that he gave. I would say this, you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. And then you need to be baptized into the Lord's church and following with an act of obedience and devote your entire life to serving him. That's why Peter on the day of Pentecost said to those men, repent and be baptized to receive the remission of sins and you shall receive the Holy Ghost. He was telling him the whole story as to what God requires of people to be saved and then to follow him. You see, the message of the Bible is one in which he advocates repentance and faith. So what does that look like? You see, repentance means we're turning away from something with our entire being. So what is it that the Bible teaches us is one of the most fundamental truths of all of Scripture. It's that the root of all sin is selfishness. I want to seek my own interests, my own desires, the things of my own heart, and that I'm selfish down as deep to the core as you can possibly find it. The brother quoted last night that there's none good, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God, that all people, if left to their own devices, would only seek their own will and welfare. And so what does the Bible tell us to do? you got to turn from that. You've got to not think and care about your will and yourself. And so if we were to visualize it, it is as if somebody is walking this direction, devoted and determined to walk a certain path, and then there's somebody that comes on behalf of God and heralds to them and says, don't go that direction. You need to repent. You need to turn around because the end of that path, as the book of Proverbs tells us, is the way of destruction. And the person says, but look how many people are on it. And what does Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22 tell us? It says that broad is the road that leadeth to destruction, and many that are go in thereat. And so we have this big group of people, both of the religious culture, both of the non-religious culture, and all of them are walking down the path that is self-soothing and self-pleasing. And so you have the message of the gospel saying, don't go that direction. It leads to eternal damnation and eternal destruction. Turn from it. And then the question is, to what? What is the object that I turn to? Many people are going down the wrong path and turn from it and never find salvation. They turn a new leaf over. You know, they, they, there was a man in revival. My brother-in-law is in revival in Indianapolis, and my mom was telling me that there's a a man that came to revival, never been to church before that they knew of, or at least to that church before, and, and that he's been a drug addict and an alcoholic for 30 years. And he said three or four years ago, you know, I started getting cleaned up, and I kind of turned my life around. But I, I, don't, I don't think I found God. You see, he found sobriety. 
He found good programs, perhaps in the AA or other things that psychology and the world has to answer. And some of them have the denominational touch to them. But listen, God's not calling a repentance away from that to just anything that sounds good and flowery. He's not even calling us to, I guess you'd call it what, pragmatism. Something that's just good and works. See, what we have today in religion, we kind of touched on it the other night, is people are very pragmatic or do what works. Worship what works. And so anything that is seen as bettering self and making one feel good, okay, you're on the wrong path and it's going to lead your family and your own life to, to shame and to hurt and to pain. And so as long as you turn to good things, you get a good job and a stable family and you're playing football with your kids in the backyard, as long as you're doing those things and you're attending church, then you have repented sufficiently to inherit eternal life. That's not it. As we mentioned the other night, we're not saying repent towards Old Union Church. No, we don't want you to do that. We want you to repent away from sin and away from self and put faith in something greater than Old Union Missionary Baptist Church. I'll say this. I, ultimately, I think it's God's will that every man, woman, and child in the world finds salvation through Jesus Christ. I'll even take it a step further. I think it's will. They find salvation through Jesus Christ, and they add their light to the candlestick, and they become a, a member of a local body of baptized believers who practice and preach the truth, and then within that setting, they devote themselves entirely to spreading the gospel and conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. I think that's God's will for everybody in the whole world. And I think God has a place and he can create churches all throughout this world where every single person in the world could have a very fitting place for them to serve God. But, you know, there are just some people, it's just reality and we can accept it. They're just not going to do that. Some people are going to get saved. And they're not going to follow God in baptism. And they're not going to seek after God and serve him with their entire life. And they might go back to a, a way that they ought not to go back to. But let me tell you, that's the reason why you don't trust in religion, but you trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. See, religion lets you down. Religion, I can, I can assure all of us. That one day, if you joined this church, this church would let you down, no doubt about it. But Jesus Christ, he is unfailing always and forever. And so what is the object of your faith? You know, a few years ago, where I lived out, there was a number of situations of immorality in local churches that took place. And you talk about depressing I mean, I, can't, I could never say in words how depressing that it was. But here was perhaps the most depressing of everything that happened. It's that at a couple of these particular churches, there were a lot of young people. And those young people saw those immoralities. And they equated God with the failure of God's people. You see, their faith, Satan had helped them 
to cleverly put the object of their faith not upon a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but rather with an institution meant to follow him. And although there is a degree of trust and a degree of commitment that we ought to give in faith, that we ought to put it in the Lord's church, and we would hope that those things would never take place, nonetheless, when those failures and immoralities came out, guess what it did to those young people? Their faith completely fractured and fell apart, and many of them left the house of God because they felt like God had failed them and let them down. Their faith were in people and not in the Lord. You see what the Bible calls us to. Now, let me say this before I go further with our text especially. Do you realize that Satan's, if you trace back all the things he does, the Bible says that he has many different, many different wars of his, or many different weapons of his warfare and that we're not ignorant of his devices. So he has many devices and the demonic forces that, that he employs use various things to hurt people all over the world. But do you know what their ultimate goal is? Like if you t take back every tactic that they have and you trace it back to its root, do you know what it is? It is to mar the character of God. I mean, let's think about, let's go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. How did Satan deceive Eve? He told her something false about God's character. You know, I'll even go as far as to say this. He didn't tell her something. He implied something. Oh, he's so crafty. He doesn't just say something that's outright false. But he weaves a good portion of truth with just a little bit of falsehood. And it sounds so right and good. And here's another thing he does. He allows our emotions to confirm what he's telling us. He is so crafty. Or in other words, this, this again, you know, this isn't necessarily biblical. This is what I believe about demonic forces. They study us. They know us. And they've seen people just like you. Why? Because they've been around for six or 7,000 years. And they have employed various tactics over the centuries and millennia and targeted people just like you and I. And they can find a way and we can go into the book of Job and we can go into 1 Chronicles and see the workings of Satan. And the book of Job gives us a lot of information about how Satan operates and how he thinks and what he's trying to do. And if he can coerce or coax you into a deception that your emotions desire to confirm, it can be such a powerful convincer And so what does Satan do? He takes a little snippet of the truth like he did to Eve, and he tells her this. God told you not to eat of that tree? Okay. God's holding out on you. Because what he knows is you'll become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Well, that's kind of true. I mean, isn't that true? At that time... They didn't know the difference between good and evil. They were innocent of any sin. But you know, isn't it one of the most sad things as a parent when we say something like, our children is losing their innocence? 
Or in other words, what we mean by that is not that they're not guilty of sin before that, but it's that they're starting to recognize the sinfulness and fallen nature of this world. And what happens? They grow calloused. They grow bitter at things and angry at things. And you slowly watch your child's innocence, as we put it, slowly dwindle away. And they're no longer in that state. Perhaps a better word is naivety. They're no longer naive. And it breaks our heart. You see, Adam and Eve, they were naive to what good and evil was. And here Satan comes in and says, oh, God's holding out on you. Do you know what he was ultimately trying to do? Impugn God's character. He was trying to say, there are riches more. There's more that you can have and delight in. And it is the knowledge between good and evil. And God is holding out on you. But if you'll do what I say, you'll experience the goodness of what God is holding you out on. And so Eve acted. Why did she act? Because she doubted God's character. You know, we find that Satan employed the same tactic there in, uh, what was it? Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation. Remember whenever Jesus is tempted by Satan? And he comes, and I, you know, it's so, it's so, so clever what he does. Right? He tempts Jesus the first time, and Jesus quotes scripture at him. So what does Satan do? Say, okay, I can quote scripture too. So the next two temptations, Satan's quoting the scriptures. And he's saying, I'm going to tempt you with these things. And the last temptation that he gave to Jesus was to take him upon the highest mountain point and he showed him the kingdoms of the world, I believe, in a very miraculous way. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, then I'll give you all the power and wealth of these kingdoms. Let's just say for a moment that God gave him the power to even give that to Jesus. I don't know if he could have or not. I I don't think he could have, but let's just speculate and say that he could have. He certainly, Jesus may have benefited temporarily from all the power and wealth of the world. But look what he would have had to have foregone. Because what God had reserved for him was a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus one day, every knee would bow and every tongue shall confess that he was Lord. God had reserved for Jesus Christ alone the right hand of his father that his enemies would become his footstool, that death would be supplanted in victory and in life and would no longer have a hold on anyone to Jesus whom imputed life. And so here Satan comes clevering, cleverly offering him something that looked good when in comparison to what God was offering, it was a laughable offer that Satan was giving to him. What was it a way of doing? Impugning God's character. That God was not giving to Christ sufficient blessings upon earth. Satan's desire is always in our hearts and minds to make God less than what he is. My pause here comes to my mind here. That's why it's so important for Christians to meditate upon the goodness of God. Or in other words, to go back, and as Peter often writes in his writings, to put ourselves in remembrance of. Go back to Lamentations and read about the 
faithfulness of God. You know, that's one of the beautiful, wonderful things about singing and about hymns is if you go and many of the songs that Brother Eaton have broken into this week have been ones that reminisce and remind us about the goodness and the blessings of God and the wonderful nature of his character. When we sing songs like great is thy faithfulness, it's important to remember at times where we feel deserted, at times when we have prayed ourselves out and we are completely empty and we have nothing less to left to say, it's important for us to remember that our pleas go up before the mercy seat of God, that he truly hears us, that we have the privilege to come into him as as the book of of, of Hebrew tells us, chapter 4, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might receive help and grace in time of need. It's important that when you have your, uh, in the morning, your devotionals and you're pulling out your Bible to read throughout the day, that one of the things you're confirming, I would argue the most important thing you're confirming in your heart is how good God really is. Why? Because you have somebody whose primary objective all day, every day is to impugn his character to you. What's the effect of that? Well, You start praying about something and God doesn't answer you, right? The way you want it, how you want it, and the time frame that you want it. Well, then you start doubting what? Well, does he hear me? Well, then you say, well, okay, I read in the promises that he always hears me because he's omnipresent. Does he care? And then, you know Satan's name, right? The great accuser, the false accuser. That's about the point that I get right there where I say to myself in my heart, my sinful, fallen heart, does God care about me? Because here's my reasoning. Eight billion people in the world, what am I? Right? I mean, presidents, kings, wealthy people, talented people, all the important people in the world, sinful heart says, who are you? Why would God care about you? And that's the moment that Satan creeps in, at least how I imagine it. And he says, and think of what you've done lately. Remember your sins? Remember what you said yesterday to your children, to your spouse? Remember the anger you had in your heart? Not only is God so busy he doesn't care about you, you're so sinful God would never look down and help you. And it's those moments where I feel like God is light years away. He's forever away. And all of my misunderstanding hinges on this. My lack of understanding about who God is. Because if I recognize this, on my best of days and in my worst of days, When I come before the mercy seat, you know when people pray, what do we say at the very end? In the name of Jesus, amen. Why do we say that? Where did that come from? You know where it's it's meant, we say it maybe as habit, you know what it's meant to be? It's a recognition that I am not coming before God the Father based upon my own righteousness and merit. Sometimes this is what I say at the beginning of my prayers, Lord, I know that the only reason why you're receiving me right now is because of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. 
and thank you that there is entryway into your courtroom. Thank you that I can stand with your attention, that you look down upon this puny little ant, Brad Hicks in the middle of nowhere, doing things that the world would consider nothing, small as they can be. Thank you that I don't come and knock upon your door in the name of Bradley Hicks, but rather I come in the name and for the purpose of Jesus Christ. And that man sits on his right hand and he makes intercession on my behalf and I can pray boldly, not because I'm feeling particularly spiritual that day, not because I've been, had a good day and felt really righteous, not because there were points during the day where maybe I did a good deed or had a good prayer or sang a good song or preached a good sermon in my own eyes because all of those things is comparing myself to other people and that's why I vault myself into this righteous state. But rather, when Truth be told, I can come into the presence of God the Father, that man that lit up the face of Moses because he saw his hinder parts, that one who spoke from Mount Sinai and the thunderings and the lightnings and the people cried out and said, God, it's true great for us. That man that when Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, when he saw the presence of God, he bowed down and cried out unclean that he was unworthy to step in the presence of God. The Bible teaches me that when Jesus died, the was rent and I have full access to come into that place not because of my own righteousness but because the character and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone I have access because of Jesus you have access because of Jesus and if there is any moment where we begin to think that it is of ourselves that we can come into his presence in the minds of these lost people we mar the character of God Sin has no place at the footsteps of heaven. See, it's important for us to understand this because lost people, I, I think they're greatly influenced, I know they're greatly influenced by our view of God. Nothing is more important than to portray through our understanding and life that God is perfect that he will never fail us, that he will never let us down, that he is eager to save, that he is full of mercy, that he is full of grace, that he is not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but at all points was, or was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews chapter five that a, that a, a high priest comes and he understands when the people come to him because he himself is fraught with all types of sin and imperfections. And though Jesus was void of sins, he understands perfectly every weakness, every frailty of this flesh, and yet he lived it perfect. And that's the reason the Bible says he sympathizes with us. He understands how we feel. The rejectedness, do you remember when he looked upon uh, Jerusalem and after thousands of years of Jesus through the prophets trying to minister to those people, those people rejected him. And when Jesus this is lamenting, looking over that crowd of people, looking over that city. He's not just lamenting that they rejected his three-year ministry. He's lamenting thousands of years of God trying to reach those people's heart, and yet they rejected him. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, projecting of that day, that that man Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was one of the saddest men to ever walk the face of the earth, if not the saddest man, because of sins and the down of people 
So you look at your spouse, you look at your friends, you look at the people who have betrayed you, you look at your children, and you're so deeply disappointed. Praise God when you go to God in prayer. He not only can answer you, but the Bible says in Hebrews that our high priest sympathizes with us. It's just the same reason why somebody who has lost a child can help somebody who's lost a child grieve. Somebody who's lost a spouse can help somebody grieve. Because in the heart of the person being counseled, they know that that person understands the unexplainable. You recognize that vocabulary is very limited, right? Or in other words, this. Words can never express the depth of the human heart. As eloquent as a man can be, Noah Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, published, if I remember right, it's either 80 or 120,000 words. He knew 16 languages thoroughly. He knew 32 to some degree because he studied the origin of all those words. He's a wonderful writer. That's not a surprise, is it? And yet, in reading his testimony of salvation, which is in the preface of that dictionary, and in listening, reading some of the writings that he has, I was waiting, you know, he's going to have found the way to express salvation. No, he didn't. He's found the way to express all these human sorrows that he went through. Guess what? He didn't. Because what I learned as a young man is that the things of this life and the things we experience and feel can never be captured in words. No more than when I stood in Alaska and I looked and I saw the mountain peaks and the chains of those mountains going all around you and you were in all of God's creation. And I take a picture and I look at it and I say, that's terrible. And I take another picture and I look at it and I say, that's terrible. And you take another and another and another. And then you recognize this device cannot capture all of this. That's how words are to the human heart. It's a device that cannot capture the fullness. But you know who can capture it? Our high priest. You come before his throne. The Bible tells us that he's full of mercy and compassion. Lost friend, here is the intent of my message tonight is to say this. I don't want to just encourage you to repent from sin and put faith in some random place. Put faith in the object and a person of Jesus Christ. That man, well, that's a man right there. I mean, really. Jesus, I love as we read in scriptures, you know, one of my favorite things to do when I get really discouraged is I go and I read the red. That's, I'm sure, common to many people. But what I love to read is the what I would call the unexpected behavior of Jesus on earth. What I would think is unexpected, right? Like, if you were to design a story that a God that was all-powerful came to earth, what would your story look like? Well, thankfully, we can read stories where that very thing happened, right? In ancient Greece, what do they have? Gods that came down to earth. We ancient Rome, we can read in Indian cultures. And guess what? The whole, what is it called? The, the Bhagavad Gita, I think is what it's called. The, the, the Hindu... Bible is what you could call it. It's full of stories just like that of gods who did great things. And guess what? You go through the Bhagavad Gita and the Indian culture. You go through Hinduism and Buddhism. You go through all those cultures. You go through ancient Greece. You go through ancient Rome and ancient Persian. And you read about all the stories of the gods. And guess what? 
It's nothing like the story of Jesus. No, you see, our God, in part to fully understand and sympathize with the weakness of human flesh, took upon him every restraint that you and I feel. Temptation. And so he hungered and he sorrowed and he went through physical pain. I believe, take this and look at it for yourself. I don't want to create any controversy. Jesus learned as he went through life. You know that? Luke chapter 2 tells us that. I think people think Jesus had just this, this way. He just knew everything when he was a baby. Well, the Bible says this in Luke chapter 2, after that he was lost there in Jerusalem at 12 years old, and he was going back with his parents. It says this, he grew in wisdom and stature. Somebody says, well, he didn't know everything. I would say this. It's a greater power to have access to know everything and choose not to know everything than to just know everything. I'll leave that with you for just a minute, right? He chose to restrain that part of it. And he only knew and did what the Father gave him the power to know and do. Thus, he knows the restraints and the human weaknesses that we feel. And so what did Jesus do? He went to outcasts and downtrodden. He went and cities would come out to him. And what would they bring to him? Not the eminent scholars. What would they bring to him? All the sick. All those people that we have buildings for now. You know? I feel guilty about that, about our culture a little bit. Anybody who's inconvenient to our culture, we put in a building. And then we conveniently once in a while go and see them. You know what Jesus said? Bring them all to me. I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners I came to call to repentance. And many times as you look through the book of Matthew, one time I was discouraged, I started reading the book of Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, I started noticing it talks about Jesus' compassion a lot and how he would go out to people. And I believe it's Matthew chapter 9 where it says he went out to the people and he had compassion on them for they seemed like, I think he quoted this the other night, like a sheep who had no shepherd. And so Jesus felt this tremendous compassion on them. That man who was calling out with, he was blind, he's saying, Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And even the people who knew Jesus' character in life and had seen the way that he functioned was still saying, be quiet. He's going to do more important things with more people. And Jesus stepped to the side and went over to that man. You know, lost friend, I believe that Jesus has the character of all the busy things going on in the world today, of all the hospitals full of trauma and surgeries, of all the drug addicts on the streets, of all the orphans, of all the widows crying in their homes, looking for, for, for companionship, of all the pain and suffering of new people who have been diagnosed with the most horrible diseases, of the most 
terrible famines going on in the heart of Africa, of the most terrible diseases that are uncured in all parts of the world, and the suffering loss that you and I feel that we don't express to other people. Jesus has all of these people crying at his feet, and yet what I know of the character of Christ is that when a person humbly comes to him, desiring him, and will repent of everything else, and they say, Lord, I don't want any of that stuff. All I want is you. You're the man that I've been told I can trust. You're the one that I can put all the money in my bank account, all the eggs in my basket I can put in you. And Lord, I am committing my life and my eternity in your hands because of your goodness, because of what you've done. And the Bible tells us this, that whenever he looked upon us and he gave his life for us and determined to do so, that God committed his love towards us. And while that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was in the mount, it was at the point of your most sinful moment that Jesus determined, I am dying for you. So if you come to him and you say, Lord, I want you, this perfect man who did all this for me, I want you more than anything. And you put your faith that not only can he save you, but he will save you. God will save you. If you go to God and you're just playing, you know, you're, you're playing dice. Well, I'm going to give it a roll this time. See if God will save me. Oh, I didn't get snake eyes. God's not going to save me tonight. You can't gamble like you might on your mom or your dad. You know, that's how it was as parents, right? You try to catch your parents in a good mood before you asked them for something. And so you'd wait and you'd butter them up. You tell them all the good things about your day at school. Normally, you just walk right to your room and you shut the door. But now you want something. So what do you do? You go in there and you tell them about every detail of your day. And then at the very end of it, you put on the end. Hey, mom, can I go over to this person's house on Friday? Because what you know is that your parents are subject to emotion. Guess what? God's not. Not in the slightest. God's not distracted. God's not subject to emotions. God's not deterred by the sins you've committed in the day. When a person repents of their sins and put their full faith in Jesus Christ and in his character that he'll save them, he'll do it in that moment. If you're not saved, are you distrusting of God? Has Satan won the battle of the mind and said, unless you pray that perfect prayer, and you don't pray like those preachers do, and you don't pray like your parents do, and you don't pray like the, unless you pray just the perfect prayer, well, you're not going to be saved. Has God convinced, has, has he convinced you that, that God is this, you know, the way I thought of as a kid, even after I got saved, was God's this old man with a big old white beard in the sky sitting upon his throne, and it's really important that my visual was that he had his arms crossed. Kind of like, well, what are you going to do for me before I help you? That's how I visualized it in my mind. That's not the way God is. That's the way Satan wants to conceive of him. No, but I believe that his eyes, just like it says many times in scriptures, was roaming to and fro on the earth, looking for the humble, penitent, broken heart that's saying, God, I want you and you alone. Do you trust Jesus tonight? The man, he's not a figment of our imagination. He's not somebody that's afar off. No, he's here. And he's meek and he's lowly and he's personal 
and he's compassionate and he wants to save you tonight. He is good. I said last night, and I'm going to close with this. If you're not saved, it's not from the defect in God's character. The object of your faith must be put and trust in that perfect man and him alone. Brother Steve stood up and testified the other night. And what do he keep saying? I love Jesus. Oh, and the more, you know, the great thing, I worried about this when I started pastoring here. I don't know if I should have worried about it or not, but I did. I thought, well, right that first Sunday I was there, I believe it was December 27th. First Sunday I was here, I I drove away. I might have even said something to Kathleen about it. Well, this this day right here is the day they're going to like me more than any other day. That day today. Why? Because you're going to get to know me. And all it's going to take is getting to know this fallible man and you're going to start to see oddities and things you don't like. You know what I've marveled at the person of Jesus Christ? You dive deep into the scriptures. You read his biography here. And you think, just like those men said at his time, never a man like that man. And then you start to feel the pressures and hardness of life. And you go and you try them out for yourself. No longer is, you know, I'll say this, the majority of my knowledge of Jesus is not derived from right here. It's derived from right here. And it's not just in what he's told me, it's in how he's told me. I love that about, I love that about my walk with the Lord. Sometimes I am so, so shattered and feeble and broken because of the weight in life. I can't handle God's chastening hand coming in a stern voice. I can't handle it. And God knows it. Brother Brian and I were talking the other day about parenting and we were talking about how the difficulty in knowing when do you come down firm and gracious and merciful. And here's what I've concluded because I've asked a lot of parents, people who are really old, people who are really young, Here's what I concluded. Nobody knows. I mean, isn't that a struggle? I mean, sometimes you, you, you learn a few tricks along the way, but ultimately, isn't it tough? I'm so thankful that I've learned about the character of Jesus Christ because of my personal relationship with him and the times where I needed a rebuke and a hardness and a get-up son and toughen up and man up a little bit, just like he did to Jeremiah there. That's what God gave me. And at times when I was shattered and broken, he said, son, come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest. And so what do I do? I take my burdens to the Lord and I leave them there, and he carries me. Just like that man as Christ was going up Golgotha carried his burden. Sometimes as I bear the cross in Matthew 16 that Jesus told me to carry. He said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And here I carry the cross of life up all the responsibilities that I have. And then like Jesus, I fall to my knees broken and I can't go any further. And what happens? Oh, he doesn't call some random man from the crowd. No, God himself picks up the cross and picks up me with it and carries me for a little while. That is the man I am telling you to trust tonight. That's why I'm telling you about him. There's no man like him, and you can trust him. 
I'll bet my life and my soul. I'll bet everything I have in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ alone. When you pray, put your faith in Christ. Put put it in, in a person. God will save you. Sister Ashley, let's get, let's get a song tonight. If you're here and you're lost, repent of your sins. Put faith in Jesus Christ, that perfect man. And he will save you tonight. Today, if you harden not your hearts. That's our message tonight. I pray that God would use it in your heart. And he would call you to himself this evening. And if he does, I pray you'll seek after him.